So here's some exciting news from On Being Studios. Our podcast, This Movie Changed Me, is back. Each episode is hosted by our very own movie-obsessed executive producer, Lily Percy, and is like a love letter to movies and their power to teach, connect, and transform us. You don't have to have watched the movies in advance, but if you love Groundhog Day or The Wizard of Oz or Black Panther or Coco or even The Exorcist, you're already ahead. This is also a fabulous audio experience. Great thoughts, laughter, a few tears, and immersive movie music and moments. This season features conversations with Seth Godin, Naomi Alderman, and A.O. Scott. New episodes are out every Tuesday. If you haven't listened yet, it's time. Learn more, as always, at onbeing.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Imani Perry writes this in her book called Breathe. In the Catholic tradition, there is a form of grace, the sanctifying one, that is the stuff of your soul. It is not defined by moments of mercy or opportunity. It is not good things happening to you. Rather, it is the good thing that is in you, regardless of what happens. You carry this down through generations, same as the epigenetic trauma of a violent slave master society. But the grace is the bigger part. It is what made the ancestors hold on so that we could become. For the past few years, Imani Perry has been pondering this as she writes about what it means to raise her two black sons, and as a thinker and writer at the intersection of law, race, culture, and literature. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I interviewed Imani Perry as part of an expansive exploration of the theme of grace at the 2019 summer season of the Chautauqua Institution in the historic outdoor amphitheater. Good morning. I'm so happy to bring Imani Perry back to Chautauqua. I brought her here once before when we did a week of programs on the stage of the Hall of Philosophy. And it was a day of biblical rains. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Torrential. We actually had to stop the recording two or three times. We had to stop the conversation two or three times. Um, I'm delighted to bring her back, and we will not be interrupted. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me again. Yes, that was wonderful. It was wonderful, despite the rain. <laughs> um, you, you, were, you describe yourself as a cradle Catholic. Yes. Born in... Alabama. Indeed. Um, how? Oh, there you go. See? <laughs> There's something. It's divine intervention. It is. A sign. There's a jinx. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> a moment of silence while the alarm winds down. Um, but you also describe yourself as a child of the fragments. Yes, and, and really multiple traditions. I yeah. mean, I, in my own life, there's this um, kind of dance between a very traditional black southern coming of age um, as my foundation, and then on the other hand, my family's Catholic, which is rather unusual yes. for that part of the world. And, um, you know, and I... I grew up in Massachusetts and I spent summers in both Alabama and Chicago and in all of those places there's these sort of multiple encounters both with a variety of types of people yeah. and also spiritual traditions and your um, you know what strikes me between uh, the time that we spoke in 2014 here mm, at Chautauqua gosh. I mean and now a lot it's not happened. that many years, but it's been a really tumultuous moment of great shift um, culturally. And, and something that strikes me that I don't think I saw in the same way when we spoke before, you know, your mother and grandmother are Catholic, your 
mother, in fact, was a former nun for yes. a little while. Your great-grandmother was Baptist. Mm -hmm. your, your birth father was Lutheran. Your father who raised you was Jewish and yes. white. Yes. Um, and, and what I also see, what I see writ large now is you straddle so many American divides, not just mm -hmm. oh, yeah. black and white, but south and north. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's Alabama, there's Chicago, there's Princeton, there's the religious and intellectual yes. um, polarization, and there's kind of a multi-class identity, which is really extraordinary in a moment like this. There's some words of James Baldwin at the beginning of your book, which you named after these words of his, more beautiful and more terrible. Yes. He said, American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. And I kind of feel like you and your person embody that prism. Um, thank you. I mean, I think that that is um, my experience, and you know, I, the, the transition for me personally from sort of feeling like I'm this kind of strange person entering all of these worlds to actually un thinking about it as a source of insight um, and, a, and, and offering me a capacity to connect with a variety of people. I mean, that's part of my, the process of maturing. Oh. So, you know, I'm constantly trying to think about how do we more fully recognize each other as human and so in order to be more humane. And how do we shift what we talk about as political questions to ethical questions, mm. um, which is really where they belong. Mm. Um, and some of that is through, through story. Some of that, um, I think, has to be through encounter. And so um, to whatever, sort of whatever little, little um, job my callings do, I think part of it is to sort of bring those stories um, through to add to the conversation. Mm -hmm. A um, couple of things that that sparks in me. I mean, I also think, and I want this to run through our conversation today, you know, I like to, I have a long view of time, and I think that comes out of the kind of conversation I have. Um, and I like to play this, I like to play this thought experiment, what, you know, what will people looking back a hundred years from now, what will they actually see? Mm -hmm. Um, and it may be that what we think is important that's going on, you know, is not at all what will rise to the surface. Right. Um, what I also know is that when time becomes history, there will be an us, right? They will look back at us as an us. As an us, yes. Um, although it's a very fraught thing to use the word we for any individual person now to use the word we and mean a lot of other groups. So that's interesting. Yes. And also that connection between human and humane, you know, in yeah. French, those it's the same word, but somehow that move is, is where our salvation lies. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because one of the kind of reviewers in the process for my book on gender was like, you keep using this word we, you know, that that's, and, and saw it as a problem, but the we shifts. Right, so the we is a collective we, but it's also yeah. sometimes a, a smaller we. In this moment, for me, especially with the question of a hundred years in the future, the thing that um, I, I think about on a daily basis is the earth and yeah. the earth screaming. And I think there's an imperative, I think, to think about we in the mm -hmm. global sense as much as we sort of break off and. Um, in, in, in a multiplicity of kind of silos and, yeah. and factions, yeah. Yeah, and that's a, that's a complicated move for us to make. Uh, that Juggling all of that at the same time. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways um, you have been working through this mm -hmm. is uh, through this book you've written. Yes. Uh, we talked about all the many identities you have, and this is your identity as a mother. Yes, the most important one. Right. A mother of two sons, mm -hmm. a mother of two black sons. Yes. And so when you and I were at Chautauqua in 2014, they were 8 and 11. Mm -hmm. um, you know what was very... We were halfway through the second term of a black president. Um, what was very present in that moment was the shooting of Trayvon Martin. Yeah. I remember you talking about how your sons just wept when George Zimmerman was acquitted. And I, across the years, I've, I've, I've actually thought of you and your sons. Yeah. Because oh, we had that conversation you. in yes. that moment. 
And I feel like in this book, you know, this is you both reflecting on what that has been um, and speaking to them and speaking to the rest of us. So, you know, you started with a quote, um, which you, you attribute to everybody and their mother. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it must be terrifying to raise a black boy in America. Yes. I'm a bit tired of that question. Are you? I am. Okay. Because it often feels voyeuristic. Yeah, and I wanted to acknowledge yeah. that. And you say that in the book. Yeah. You, say, you, you actually wrote, the indelicate assertion hangs in midair, people speculating as if this is a matter of fact, hungry for your suffering or crude with sympathy. Yeah. So I do, I do actually want to acknowledge that right here. Yeah, and it's, it's an echo of um, Du Bois's 1903 Souls of Black Folk when he talks about um, how does the, hearing the question, how does it feel to be a problem to which I seldom answer a word? Uh, and there is, and there's something to the fact that 100 plus years later, the same question yeah. um, remains. Um, and part of the, what I'm trying to work through is that, yes, there is terror, but there's also incredible beauty and there's a way in which the repetition of the narrative of the terror um, uh, almost um, evacuates the full humanity of their lives right. and my life and right. also the incredible beauty and so the question for me is both you know how do how, how do we acknowledge this social reality of deep inequality, of mass incarceration, of um, death of innocent black youth, right? And also uh, recognize that, you know, that it's important to assert and reassert the full humanity and beauty of their lives and also to offer them a vision of their lives that is meaningful. Yeah. Um, and a kind of witness that I think actually speaks to the entirety of the human experience. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what I want to invite you to do or ask you to do is, as we talk about this for the next few minutes, if, if the question I ask isn't a good question. <laughs> no, I mean, yes. if it's not a question you want to engage, I want you to tell me what question you oh. do want to engage. Okay, I will. Because I also feel like part of what's going on in this moment is... Those of us who are reckoning, we still don't, we still don't know how to, what do we say, clear the air. Yeah. Right? We're figuring this out We're as all we figuring go. it out. Yeah. And, uh, and I actually think part of what has to happen is this kind of, you know, you saying to me, I'm weary of that question. Yeah. And yet it's not that you don't want to talk. It's right. that we have to learn together and from each other. And I have to learn yeah. from you how to engage this particular aspect of what, as you say, is not just a piece of your story. It's a piece of our story. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's this question in the book. This is you speaking to your sons. You know, how do you become in a world bent on you not being and not becoming? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted, as a mother, I read that, and I want to know, like, unfold right. how you see what it means, like, very particularly how that question unfolds in the life of your sons and right. in your life with them as a mother. Absolutely. What does that mean? Because and your sons are also, you know, you, you, sorry, I'm going to let you speak, but you know, you talk about, it's true that if you begin your journey as, as a black or brown child in the United States from the very beginning of your life, you're less likely to receive decent medical care, quality education, have high, teachers who have high expectations of you, and less likely to live in a safe community. And that's not true of your sons. That's right. And yet... And yet, this question is something you live with. Absolutely. I th so just, it was very important for me to acknowledge the class position uh, of my sons and the rarity of their experiences, not just for black children, but for children in the United States. I mean, they have uh, remarkable, you know, they live in a home literally with thousands of books. They have remarkable resources, right? And, at the, and, I, and I think it's important to acknowledge that because I don't want to participate in the fiction, right, that, um, that often I think follows when those of us who are black people have a large public voice to overrepresent our particular experience as mm -hmm. the experience, right? Um, and at the same time, they deal with race and racism every day of their lives. They see it, they know it, 
Um, I can give examples from the time they were five years old of encounters with racism um, in, in progressive schools, mm. right, on the street, right? Um, and so the reality is that I have to arm them not simply with kind of uh, a set of skills um, and intellectual tools that allow them to flourish in school and ethics and values, but also a way to make sense of the hostility that they encounter every day from people at times whose responsibility is to treat them as community members. Right. Right? That's the world they occupy. The people who are closest with them, sometimes people who they spend more hours with every day than they do with me. Right. Right? Um, and that's a complicated task. Um, and I mention it in part because I do want it to trigger for readers a kind of ethical reflection on their part. Right? What is it, um, you know, all of these things um, come up when we have these sort of cross-racial encounters or cross-class encounters, right? Yeah. And we tend not to be reflective of them in part because as, as James Baldwin talked about, Americans are addicted to innocence, right? We're so busy, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that thing I don't wanna be, that it becomes very hard to engage in correctives of our behavior. Right. Um, so I want them to uh, be able to assess what their experience to not internalize um, the venom that sometimes to, to have sort of antidotes at the ready, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. to feel as though there are spaces where they can return and actually um, acknowledge the, the experience of suffering right. and pain, right? That that is part of the work of intimacy that they have with, a part of actually the, the actual work of intimacy and, and our family, right? Can you give an example of just maybe something that's happened recently that kind of illustrates this, yeah. how this turns up yes. innocently? Or, yeah. Right? <laughs> okay, oh gosh, how many examples? Um, so actually, it's not that recent, but um, uh, there was... Uh, an incident, this is actually when my younger son is very small at school, uh, and a child said, um, you know, I don't, um, there was something, you know, they were doing some crafts, and she was like, I like you, you, and you, and I don't like you too. And my son, of course, being my son, said, is it because we're black? <laughs> and she said, yes. Um, and the... And my son said, well, that means you're a racist. Um, and the other child, you know, was really hurt, um, who was one of the ones put out. And my child had this indignation. And um, the teachers dealt with it appropriately. There was, you know, discussions and et cetera, et cetera. But what stuck with me is that the parents of the child who said this, who I had been seeing for never spoke to me, like never would look me in the eye and speak to me in school every day, right. who identify themselves as liberal, identify themselves as progressive on race, and not just wouldn't speak to me, but wouldn't speak to other black people. So they had taught right. this child this lesson, right? How was she to make sense of it any other way, right? right? I mean, so who never said anything, I assume, negative about black people, but you know, when you are, you, you see however innocently, right, um, a refusal to um, even have the barest interaction with black people, you're teaching children a lesson, right? right? Right. Even a basic reading. And I think, you know, and that's not an indictment of those parents. It's actually, I think, it should, de it demands a mirror of us. I can think of corollaries along the lines of class amongst black people. Hmm. Right? In terms of who is seen, you know, for those of us who are bourgeois, who is seen as acceptable to interact with? Who'd, who, is, who are their efforts to distance ourselves from? Right? Yeah. So those, you know, what seem like rather modest moments, or, or moments that are resolved, that actually are not at all resolved. Right. You know? Because we, well, we resolve the moment, but not the underlying yes. drama.
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Imani Perry at the Chautauqua Institution. You know, so what that, what that leads into is something else I want to talk to you about, um, which is uh, whiteness, mm-hmm. which is um, a, I feel like, at least, and this doesn't necessarily mean a huge amount of progress, but that there's that word yes. is out there. Mm-hmm. And there is, I would say, a dawning realization um, uh, that, that whiteness is a thing, that it's a construct, just like race is a construct, that white people yeah. also must acknowledge that they have race, that the race discussion is not about everybody else. Right. But there's something you wrote about in here that I found really useful, mm. which was the analogy of um, foot binding. Mm. You said that you have this, this fascination with foot binding um, as a cultural uh, practice, practice yeah. in China. Um, and you said whiteness is a potent form of binding. Yeah. So would you kind of uh, tease that out, that right. imagery? In? Um, I mean, I think that it is a constriction. Um, it cuts off the blood supply, right? Uh, it disciplines It disciplines or threatens to discipline white people out of deep identification with other human beings, which I think is the natural state of things. I'm always um, struck by how often people act as though racial differentiation is natural. You know, that that's sort of a natural... I don't think that's natural, actually. I think the natural condition is for human beings to actually have the capacity to identify and resonate with one another. I think the, the mm. creation of whiteness actually has done, does something to close that off. That it creates the differentiation. It creates the differentiation and it creates the sense of potential terror in not holding the boundary. I mean, it's not incidental that there were laws against black and white people playing checkers together in Alabama, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just it's such an absurd thing, right. but it was implemented to, to discipline, particularly working-class white people, from identifying with people who are much closer to them than the elites right. who are making laws, right? And so, um, so I do think about sort of the prospect of the emancipation of white people from a, from a white imagination, right, to a human one that isn't um, sort of bound up in this identity that often doesn't get articulated, but one is reminded of constantly, right? So whether it's media, television, right? Um, how we're educated, right? The, the way that, I mean, even the genealogies, I'm often telling my kids things like, you know, it's sort of strange that Greece is figured as the beginning point for um, kind of uh, the, the history of the West for Americans when there's such a tiny Greek American population, right? That is, or how, or how, or how marginalized um, Greece is actually currently in the West, right? How vulnerable Greece. So right. there's this, all these mythologies right. that are taken at face value that are really about it's imaginative. This idea of whiteness. It's an act of right. of imagination, right? And we can yeah. imagine differently. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a piece of it. I will say this though. Um, and it's a little bit off topic, but it relates mm-hmm. to your question. So, um, you know, several years ago, when people started showing the videos of the of whatever unarmed black people being killed right, by police officers or, or yeah. others, right? And there was this idea that, well, if white people know, they just don't know, and if we if you show these, if people know, then something will change. Um, and you know, I was skeptical of it then. Uh, I'm very sure now that um, actually the repetition, and you never know, I mean, the repetition of seeing a group, a particular group of people suffering may have the capacity to make one identify with their suffering, but it also may deepen stigma. It has the prospect of actually saying, oh, yeah, those are the people who, the kind of people who just I get see. killed. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's, and we know that's It becomes that another be way to differentiate. It becomes, and, and, um, and to me the question is not so much the visual, I mean, and 
there's lots of sort of different ways to think about this, but I don't think that the issue was whether or not it was seen visually. I think the issue is the disbelief, right, about the depth of inequality in this country and the depth of racialized violence in this country, and that disbelief is actually at the cornerstone mm -hmm. of American history that has to be kind of has to be broken down. And videos, tragic as they are, are not going to do that. I think that's so helpful and useful mm -hmm. to focus in on the disbelief yeah. as the thing to be working with. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You say, to come back to this foot-binding analogy, you, you were just kind of, again, doing this thought experiment. You, know, you said, and I wonder, you were talking about foot-binding, you said, and then I wonder what happened when in a cultural upheaval, these self-same women who'd been told all their lives that this was the way to be beautiful and respectable and noble, these self-same women were told foot-binding was over. Yeah. They could barely walk. Right. Binding doesn't let you get free without serious wounding. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, I think we would do an ethical wrong if we didn't acknowledge that there will be enormous growing pains, right? And there also, there are growing pains now that are, you know, I mean, one of the things that, you know, research shows that is, is that if you tell um, white constituents or potential voters about the coming ethnic plurality, right? That there will no longer be, it'll be, we won't, it won't, United States in, in however many years will no longer be a majority white nation. It'll right. be sort of a collection of various groups, right? Everybody will be a minority, right? Um, the, that leads to increased conservatism amongst white voters. I mean, that is a huge, I mean, that's a, that's just a demographic shift. Right, which is a very different question than a sort of political or moral or ethical shift, right? But even that um, causes a great deal of discomfort. Um, it's a transformation that I'm not sure how that will play out in this country, but, right. you know, it's, change is hard. Yeah, no, Whether that, deliberate or not, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, we don't, we don't deal, just biologically we're learning. We, physiologically it's stressful and it's more stressful for some than for others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, and I just think that it's important to, and I, I, I mean, I try to do this with myself in this book, um, but also to acknowledge that, you know, we, we all experience the difficulties of change and transformation and tragedy. Some get it much worse than others. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, um, I want to actually read a little bit from your book, Breathe. Um, Mothers like me once had no recourse, no power to hold off the lash, to hold on indefinitely, to fight back when they crushed your heart and life. I think back then I would have been like Frederick Douglass's mother. I would have bared one of my scars, like the one on my knee from a bit of flying charcoal at a cookout when I was six, and told you to remember me by it in the crowd of endless labor to know me by it. And if I didn't have a landmark on my flesh, I would have made one for you, carved it into my right arm, a knifed X for your mother. So, you know, this life we have is grace. In the Catholic tradition, there is a form of grace, the sanctifying one, that is the stuff of your soul. It is not defined by moments of mercy or opportunity. It is not good things happening to you. Rather, it is the good thing that is in you, regardless of what happens. You carry this down through generations, same as the epigenetic trauma of a violent slave master society. But the grace is the bigger part. It is what made the ancestors hold on so that we could become. So earlier this summer, I was in, this year I was in um, Florence and I saw Michelangelo's um, Pieta. And one of the questions I ask and breathe is how many Pietas, right? Mm. So we see this repetition of, of mothers 
who have had their sons taken away, and I, I am um, resistant to the um, repetition of that could have been my son because it's not, and it's you know we shouldn't sort of rob the moment with our self-interestedness mm. of the tragedy. Right, we're supposed to surround the people who have been confronted the tragedy um, with love, but there is something that is carried through history and generations of the most devastating tragedies, and we live despite them and we live with them. And I think the question is not, you know, there, there's a part of it that is, what does that tell us about how to be human better? Um, that ought to be, we ought to be sort of listening to history and the world. I mean, you know, one of the things that um, with Toni Morrison's passing that I have been thinking about and talking about is that what her work has done for, for me and I think for many others is to really have us sit in the ordinariness of, of tragedy, mm. of devastation. But it's also there's something universal. Um, and, to, and to be present with both of those um, and to not, I mean, I, I, you know, so every time I go through some heartbreak or something devastating, I go back to her work and I read the entire body mm. of the work. Mm. In part because, you know, there's something, and I do think this is peculiarly American, where we're always trying to sort of find our way to the charmed life where no disaster ever happens. Yeah. Well, I think it's a human thing, but Americans have really we're, taken we're it really as their calling. We're really experts at it, yeah. right? I mean, we just can't, like, we can't even talk about death. Yeah. Um, but we all are going to be there, right? Um, we're all going to, and, and, and God willing, you know, every meaningful relationship that we have in our lives will end. And I say God willing because that means that we have loved and then lost, right? We've loved long enough to, and we've lived long mm -hmm. enough to love and lose, right? Mm -hmm. um, every relationship, even the, the very, the most important ends in death, yeah. right? Um, or uh, another kind of fracture. And so, um, you know, the, all of this to say, these are really fundamentally human questions, right? And if, so there's these social questions, social and political questions about how we organize our society better. But I think we also have to tap into the kind of the universality of them to even begin to answer them, right? Mm -hmm. There's a reason, I mean, my favorite metaphor is the one of guitar strings, right? So if you are sitting next to someone who's, and you both have guitars and if you're close enough and you strum and the wind makes the, the, the strings on the other guitar reverberate, right? That to me, that's a metaphor of like, you know, of the, the capacity of human beings to connect with one another. And that's what I think we have to be looking for. Mm -hmm. and, I, and not in a Pollyanna-ish sense, because no. that's hard. But I don't know what else we do. And that is, for each and every one of us, interior work. Mm -hmm. As much as oh, it yes. is work that we do in concert and in That's right. conversation. That's right. And in shared life. Yeah. No, it's interior. And it's, I think, you know, it's why um, I love all forms of art, but there's something very special about reading, right? Because you are entering into a world with other human beings, but it's very interior, right? There's something yeah. very intimate about it. And so there's this, um, you know, I mean, it's why I'm a writer. Right? There's a possibility to get to that. After a short break, more with Imani Perry. This show is part of On Being's Civil Conversations Project, tools for speaking together differently in order to live together differently. Learn more at onbeing.org. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities.
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with Imani Perry. She's a thinker and writer about culture, literature, law, and race. She's brought all of this together in her meditative book, Breathe, about raising her black sons in this world. I interviewed her in the historic outdoor amphitheater of the Chautauqua Institution. Chautauqua's chief of staff, Shannon Rosner, moderated a few questions from the audience. It's as if we plan this. Our first question from Twitter is uh, about that interior work. And one of our questioners asks, do you have any advice on how to advocate for justice without resorting to attacks? It feels like the more I see in our world, the easier it is to let hate into my heart and unintentionally embody what I seek to help stop. Yeah, so that's, I think that's a really uh, important question. Attack is such a complicated word nowadays because um, (laughs) so often what is a kind of frank confrontation is experienced as attack, especially on social media because people feel so um, kind of invested in this presentation of themselves in the public. So when it's confronted, people get really defensive. Um, It's one of the sort of perils of the social media age. Um, So I do think that we have a responsibility to be able to hear, to listen, to sit when people confront us. Um, and on the other hand, um, well, I think, in, in, actually not on the other hand, and likewise, there's a lot of good reason to be furious right now. <laughs> uh, and I don't, there is such a thing as righteous rage, righteous anger, and we, uh, I don't want to dismiss that. The question is just, how do you experience that and also channel it into something productive, which, require, which is slow work? You know, we want, and and a part of the problem is the way that we've been taught the histories of social movements, right? So everything is this like dramatic event, this dramatic march, this dramatic, you know, whether bra burning, whatever, right? Yeah. And in point of fact, it's always slow work. It's deliberate work. It's work that In point of fact, the marches came after 15 and 150 years. Right. Of work. Right. Right. Day in, day out. We don't tell that story of a long arc. And it has to be, I mean, we have, that's one of our, you know, I'm always thinking like, what are the, what's the function of history? And part of the function of history is for us to move forward. So, I mean, I think that speaks to um, thinking about how we tell history in order to put it to work today. To take it back down to a more personal level, going back to the child at the arts and crafts table, if their parents were able to look you in the eye. Can you imagine for us the conversation you would have liked to have? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, honestly, I haven't thought about the substance of the conversation. I've thought about the fact of conversation. The idea that um, acknowledging me and my children as members of their community. So hello would be meaningful. (laughs) Um, And, you know, this is not, and that's, and it's, I should just say it's a, it's a repeated instance. So if anybody, you know, you talk, Anybody here, if you talk to the black people in your life, you will hear stories upon stories of being misnamed, misrecognized. I mean, I worked at an institution for seven years, and I promise you, every time, this is not Princeton's, my previous institution, every time I stepped off campus, the majority of my colleagues would not recognize me on the street. I would say hello to people, and they wouldn't say hello back, right? That's, um, and again, liberal, progressive people, right? So there's something about to, to understand that there are people for whom, who look at me and see black, not Imani, <laughs> black, right? I mean, it's as crude as that. Um, I mean, that's serious work that has to be done. Uh, and it requires, or there is, I'll, I'll tell one more anecdote, I'm sorry, but this is just, it was kind of funny to me. So I had a a colleague at one point who I saw at the train station. We lived around the corner from each other, and he said to me, hello, Kim, who's behind me. My name is Imani, right? (laughs) He said, hello, Kim. And then 
he said it again, and he said it a third time, and I said, I'm not Kim. <laughs> right? I mean, and Kim is a, an, a wonderful person, but she's literally six inches shorter than me, um, shaved head, totally different complexion, different build. And, he, and then he was so embarrassed he didn't speak to me anymore, which was not the appropriate response. You know, I mean, and I understood his embarrassment, but the question is, how do you work? And I think that the same thing with these I, I am sure these parents were embarrassed. But working through the embarrassment as opposed to actually further isolating me and my children would be a much more appropriate response. Hmm. You talked about the history inside of us, and, and I think the questioner has a, a sense of the weightiness of that. Um, we here have been wrestling with how do we take what we're learning and act upon it? Yeah. How do you do that in your life and not get paralyzed by all that clearly you know? How does that not weigh you down? Mm. Uh, to be really honest, it's, it's a combination of my grandmother, my late grandmother, and my children, right? So um, every once in a while people will say to me, you know, how can you be hopeful? And I think I have, a, and I think as a mother, I have an ethical responsibility to be hopeful, right? I mean, that's, the task is to uh, invest in, um, in our children as a way of investing in the world and investing in humanity. And I, and I think for my, you know, my grandmother, and I, I say this in the book too, it's a cliche for those of us, you know, black people from the South with working class roots were always like, my grandmother was the smartest person I ever knew, but I really <laughs> do mean it. Um, she, you know, this is a woman who did not complete high school, had 12 uh, children, cleaned homes, sent all 12 children to college. Um, yeah, I mean, she was extraordinary. And, um, and, and had a brilliant husband, but who had struggles of his own. He passed away before I was born. And, and she got up every day. You know, she lived a prayerful life. Uh, I went through a period in my life where I tried to sort of pray unceasingly. I did the Ignatian exercises in the Catholic tradition, and I was, but a lot of it was modeled after her, right? And so she would say, thank God for his many blessings every day. Even in the most difficult of moments, um, she read every day. Um, she saw a sense of meaning in every meal and in every interaction. Um, and I do think there's something about a life in which you understand the meaning of these small moments of grace that actually wards against the feeling of being overwhelmed. It's going to come. Right? But then she also, and this is one more thing, when she had those moments, she would rely on her friends. Right? So she would call mm. um, Mrs. Stewart or Mrs. McCall, and they would talk, and they would talk her through you know, when she was feeling overwhelmed. And so she, had, she modeled intimacy, she modeled friendship, she modeled um, the ideal for me of maternal love. Um, and so I sort of feel like I'm living... Uh, I'm living through her, but I'm also living what I think, there's a big part of me that is trying to be what she would have been had the circumstances of her life been different. I'm trying, I'm not, I'm not her. You know, Nita Garner-Perry was extraordinary, but I'm trying. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, sometimes people ask me um, if, what are like recurring themes right, or, rec or ideas that pop up everywhere. And I said, you know, it doesn't really work that way. But so what happens is that suddenly something surfaces and then it's in every conversation for a little yes, while. Right. And right now, um, what that is, which you just so echoed, is um, an insistence on hope and an insistence on joy and taking delight wherever and whenever, and that those are muscles for inhabiting yes. these difficult times and what your grandmother knew, that wisdom, that, you know, it's not the American thing of pulling, you know, pulling up your own joy bootstraps. Right. No. It's, it's about also understanding that we, that we can't carry those things alone. Any, any of us can't carry them on any given day. 
Uh, absolutely. And it's hard to talk about without, I think for some people, it's sounding like an evasion. But it's really the thing we're fighting for, right? I mean, it's, it's the human experience that we're fighting for the proliferation of, right? So that life is not defined primarily for so many people by suffering and violence and hardship, but actually that thing that we, that all of us possess, which is this incredible capacity for joy and beauty, um, uh, that is not, is not ego driven, right? So we in this sort of, um, we are not of the Instagram generation of in this room, <laughs> right, by and large, but um, the Instagram generation is with us, and there's a lot of display mm-hmm. of joy. Or there's a <laughs> right. lot of kind of quick pleasure, right, a rush of excitement. Joy is something much deeper than that, right? It's not surface. It's something that reaches deep inside that, um, that at, at the most beautiful moments is a moment of connection with, if not another person, with the earth, right? So I watch my, my cousin, who we have a very kind of similar disposition, my cousin Jillian, who um, is gardening with her children all the time, right? And she shares, you know, the, the sunflowers and the tomatoes and the beans and the basil, and that that is um, both life-giving, literally speaking, but also spiritually speaking, right? Um, so yes, I think that that kind of resistant joy is essential. It's essential can, for you us. You can applaud. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you, you, you wrote, um, as you're writing to your sons in Breathe, um, there is still a future, as harrowing as it might be, I admit. I try to give you everything in the face of this, every bit of sweetness to indulge and to spoil, to delight. There is enough of the other stuff for everyone's lifetimes a million times over. Yeah. Because there's something that, you know, there's this sensibility that's like, well, let's, you know, we have to arm kids and prepare them for the, and, and discipline. And, and I just, life is hard enough. I mean, I just want them, I want them to be moral and ethical human beings. So there's constant, I think we all have a responsibility with young people and not just children, but we have the responsibility to, to experience it from elders, to listen, yeah. and also to teach, um, but also to, to lavish with love. I mean, I, I think that that's, that's a big part of care today. I'm not, I'm not taking any of that away from them. They are emotionally spoiled people, my kids. <laughs> yeah. I would like for, to close with you reading from your book, um, but I think first, so this is um, from near the beginning. Okay. Okay. So I start with, uh, um, this part begins with a um, quotation from my mother. Um, Mima, your grandmother, said it this way, mothering black boys in America, that is a special calling. How do I meet it? What is it like? How do I meet this calling? Is it like cultivating diamonds, pressure that is so tight that it turns you, black, into something white and shiny and deemed precious and valuable? That's no good. Do I fuel it like coal, something that is to be burned up and used for the warmth of others, or the consolation prize on Christmas? That's no good either. Do I cover my home in the blood of a proverbial sacrificial goat, praying that we are passed over, that the bloodthirsty fear lands at someone else's door? I am tempted, but I know that prayers don't prevent tragedy. They hold you up as you pass through it, sometimes. Is it like stalking through a labyrinth, breathless yet deliberate, avoiding the snow-white minotaur? Maybe I am Theseus. Was it ever so apparent that we need to have this reckoning? Maybe I am Theseus, a living vocation, but also simply living with beckoning. And that is what it feels like. Its tenor and tone shift with the shadows of each day, but it is always there. Sometimes it screeches, sometimes it trills and warbles, sometimes it is a perfect, sweet pitch. Thank you, Imani Perry. Thank you so much.
Imani Perry is the Hughes-Rogers Professor of African-American Studies at Princeton University. Her books include More Beautiful and More Terrible, Prophets of the Hood, Looking for Lorraine, and most recently, Breathe. Special thanks this week to Michael Hill, Matt Ewald, Emily Carpenter, Rachel Borzilleri, and the Chautauqua Institution. Being project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Loren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, and Colleen Sheck. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.